Well, it is a joy to be here this morning. Yesterday, I had a delightful time with the, the men as uh, we looked at the topic of the Christian mind and the several key texts that, that exposited that truth and how we are to think Christianly and not think according to the, the world. I had a great time with the guys, and so I, I really am filled with warm memories of that. And, and then to have the opportunity this morning to open God's Word to you as God's people are gathered together on the Lord's Day is, is always a privilege. So I'm thankful to Pastor Henry for affording me this opportunity and, and also for the other elders and, and as well for, for Jimmy and Ed and Non and, and their leadership of the men's ministry and the interaction that I've been able to have with, uh, with uh, them as well. It's all been such a uh, rich blessing to me and it's been a great encouragement to see what the Lord is doing here in San Francisco. This morning what I want to do is take you to Matthew chapter 22. The title of our study this morning is The Greatest Commandment. And the title is derived from a particular question that was asked of Jesus, not in a sincere desire to learn, but actually from a desire to catch Jesus in a trap. But the question that is asked in this text of Matthew 22, though asked in bad faith, is nonetheless a question that all of us ourselves must ask and then follow with the answer that Jesus gives. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, and we will be looking specifically at verses 34 to 40. Here Matthew, the gospel writer, records this incident, verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now this question and answer that we find here in Matthew chapter 22 verses 34 to 40 is is not the only time that, that the Pharisees and religious leaders of Israel question Jesus. In fact, Matthew traces this development in his gospel and how Jesus presented himself to the Jewish people as the Messiah. He was the King of David. He was the one, the rightful one to ascend to the throne of David. He was the King that was promised in the Old Testament and now had arrived in fulfillment of those prophecies. We know that in Matthew's gospel that that. That presentation of Jesus is particularly vivid in the first 12 chapters as Jesus presents himself not only in terms of his teaching, but in terms of his character. And yet we find that Israel as a whole, as well as the leadership in particular, rejected that presentation. It reaches a climax really in Matthew chapter 11 and 12. After Jesus had performed a miracle, the leadership of Israel had had looked at that miracle, that which was to be the sign that this was the Messiah, 
the leadership looked at that miracle and attributed it to the power of Satan. And then beginning in Matthew 13, Jesus changes his ministry approach, no longer presenting himself to the nation as the Messiah, but instead presenting himself to the disciples and preparing them for what would become the church age. But the interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leadership of Israel, would not end there in Matthew chapter 12. In fact, we find in Matthew chapter 22 a kind of a final interaction that Matthew records for us as once again the religious leaders seek to catch Jesus in a trap. They look for further justification for their rejection of him as the Messiah. The questioning actually begins in verse 15 of chapter 22. We, we find there the first of a series of questions. Ours of, our question this morning that we will study is the third in the series. But a series of questions where different factions of Israel's leadership seek to test Jesus with questions issued in bad faith. The first one is issued by the Pharisees. The most popular uh, segment of the religious leadership of Israel, they were the most populist among the people. And the Pharisees, beginning in verse 15, come together among themselves and plot how they might trap Jesus in what they said. And so they ask the first question, and the first question has to do with taxation, They say this, tell us then, verse 17, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't just answer that question. Instead, he asks a question in response to their question to provide the answer to that question. And Jesus does it in such a wise way, well-skilled way, that we read this in verse 22. And hearing this, hearing this answer... And and the way Jesus handles it, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. But after they go away on that same day, the, the Sadducees take it upon themselves to ask another question. Again, with the intent to catch Jesus in in a trap and justify their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah of God. And in verse 23, we find the introduction to that question. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him. The Sadducees were the elite of the leadership, not as popular as the Pharisees, but very powerful in the Sanhedrin. A smaller number, but very, very powerful. And the Sadducees only accepted, out of all the Old Testament books, only accepted the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the rest as uninspired. And so they rejected texts like Daniel chapter 12, which describes the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in such a thing as the resurrection. And so they come seeking to catch Jesus in a trap to see whether he would be able to answer this question about the resurrection from the Torah. And again, Jesus does not answer their specific question, but instead asks a question in response. And again, confounds, in this case, 
the Sadducees. And we read in verse 33, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Then we read in verse 34, and we're going to study this text in greater depth, 34 to 40, but then this third question is asked, the Pharisees come together again and seek one more time, one final attempt to catch Jesus and to justify their disbelief. As we're going to see, they are unsuccessful. But but what is unique in this pericope is that they will ask a question. And for the first time, Jesus does not answer a question with a question. Instead, it's unique compared to the previous two questions in two ways. First of all, Jesus does provide a direct answer to the question. There is no seeking to turn to turn the tables as Jesus had done in the previous two instances the question that is asked is of such importance that Jesus gives a direct answer a very clear concise and compelling answer more than that as we will see in in greater depth there is no summary statement that is then written by Matthew as there was in verse 22, and as there was in verse 33, this question, as it comes to an end, the answer that is given is not summarized in any way with respect to the reaction from the crowd. I think there's a reason for that, and we'll get to that. Then in verse 41, what is unique is that then another question is asked, but this time the question is not asked by the Sadducees or the Pharisees, What we find in verses 41 to 46 is now Jesus asks the question. And we read in verse 46, No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. The the conversation was over. The best of Israel's leadership had been confused and confounded. And Jesus, as the Messiah, was established as the great lawgiver and the law answerer. But in our text this morning that we will look at, as we've already noticed, it is unique compared to the previous two. And it is unique because of the significance of the question itself that is issued as well as the answer that Jesus gives. So let's focus our attention now on these verses, verses 34 to 40. And we're going to break up our text We're going to break up these verses along these two lines. First of all, in verses 34 to to 36, we will see uh, the ultimate question. 34 to to 36, the ultimate question that will be asked by the religious leadership. And then in verses 37 to 40, we will see the supreme answer. A very simple structure, 34 to 36 and 37 to 40, the ultimate question followed by the supreme answer. There is a a simplicity here, but a simplicity that is not simplistic. There is a lot of profound truth here, but issued in such a way that it is striking. Let's look first then at this ultimate question in verses 34 to 36. Matthew begins and says that the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. The idea of silenced there, the verb, actually communicates the idea of muzzled. Jesus had 
put a muzzle on the Sadducees. And you don't hear them anymore after this. He had muzzled the Sadducees, those elite leaders who thought they knew everything. They were the purists in the, in the Torah, and they had been silenced by Jesus' response. But that didn't sway the Pharisees. Notice what happens in verse 34. They gathered themselves together. The language there directly recalls the language of Psalm 2, verse 2. You remember that psalm, right? That great messianic psalm where the psalmist writes this in Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and His anointed. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They gather themselves to take counsel together against Yahweh and His Messiah. And they send a specialist, a lawyer, Matthew says, to ask him a question, to test him, First of all, we must understand that the lawyer here is, is the most exacting out, out of all of the Pharisees. They were, the lawyers of the Pharisees were those most intricately trained in matters of the law and the rhetoric surrounding it. And so this is a, a legal es- expert who has been appointed by the Pharisees to be the one to catch Jesus. In fact, the text even says that the question asked is not a good faith question. It, not, it does not arise from someone who has a sincere desire to learn. It is issued as this malicious intent to try to catch Jesus in a legal error. It was a bad faith question. And the question is this, verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? They address him as a teacher, a didaskalos, not even as a rabbi. A rabbi was of a higher position. So on the one hand, they recognize that Jesus is one who has been instructing. He has followers, but they don't, they, they can't bring themselves to the point of acknowledging that Jesus is a, is a rabbi, a great teacher. They just call him teacher. And the, the, the question that is asked is, which is the great commandment in the law? And the adjective that's used here, great, should be really read as, as a superlative. They, they are not just asking, what is one of the great commandments? They are asking the great commandment. The, the, the lawyer wants to know how Jesus is going to order all of the laws. And as a legal expert, the lawyer knew that the Mosaic law consisted of 613 commandments. 613, 365 of them were prohibitions. The other 248 were commandments, were exhortations. And so the question is, Jesus, out of these 613, which is number one? What's the priority? And certainly, even though the lawyer asks this question out of bad faith, the nature of the question itself is good. It's a pressing question. What is the greatest commandment? 
When we look at all of what God has revealed, what God has communicated about himself, all that he's communicated about us, what is the priority? You could ask it even in this way, what is man's chief end? What is your chief end? What is your purpose in life? What is my purpose in life? This is a bad faith question, but it's bad faith because of the intention behind it, not because of the nature of the question itself. It's a question all of us should always be asking. What is the chief commandment? What has priority over everything in my life? Over every sphere of my existence? Over my personal life, my recreation life, my family life, my career life, my work life, my study life? What has priority over all of that? Not just what is a great commandment, but what is the great commandment? The greatest. And so even out of a crooked lawyer, we have elicited here a question all of us need to be able to answer as well. Thankfully, Jesus provides the answer. We now come to the supreme answer that is given in verses 37 to 40, we read these words, Jesus said to this lawyer, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. As I noted already, in the previous two questionings, Jesus does not provide a direct answer to the question about taxation or to the question about the resurrection. But in this case, due to the supreme importance of this question, Jesus doesn't turn the tables and ask another question. Instead, he gives a direct answer. And his answer is twofold. You, you saw it there in the text. There is the greatest of the commandments, and then the second, then the, the second one that is like it, the second one that flows from it. Let's look at the two answers then. And the first one is this. The first one is the primacy of love to God. It's in verses 37 to 40. The primacy of love to God. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus here quotes from the Shema. We heard it read already this morning. Specifically, he quotes the words out of Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. The Shema was recited by all pious committed Jews twice a day. The Shema was written, these words were written on doorposts, door frames, and on articles of clothing. It was considered to be that great summation of the Jewish faith. But there's more to it than just this mere quotation. In fact, as we look at this quotation, this citation from Moses, from Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, there's four ingredients that we need to recognize here in this citation that is important for understanding our chief purpose, understanding what is the priority over all of our lives. First of all, let's note the command, the command itself. 
Jesus says, you shall love. You shall love. That's what Moses had said as well. Now notice it doesn't say, you shall worship. Now it could have said that and it would have been a true answer, but notice the context here. Understand the audience to which Moses himself issues that command and which Jesus also speaks this command. The audience, the Sadducees here, the Pharisees, the lawyers, they were all those who prided themselves in worship. They were all those who knew all the boxes to check as it pertained to the external display of worship, of making the sacrifices, of performing the liturgies, of reciting the texts, the memorized texts. No, the command here isn't that you should worship. It takes us back actually to Matthew chapter 15. Just seven chapters earlier, Jesus is condemning the Jewish leadership there. And in, in verse, uh, verses 7 to 9 of Matthew 15, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29, 13, and, and says this, You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You see, the problem with just saying the priority is worship, the ultimate priority is worship, is that it's so easy for us to define worship in terms of external performed duties. Jesus speaks something here, uh, speaks of something here much more internal. Something that isn't even quantifiable. Something that you can't look on on the exterior and check off all the boxes and say, yes, that's sincere, that's true. No, this is something that is intensely personal. Jesus says, you shall love. What's the idea of love here? What is behind that concept? This is not love in terms of a feeling. This is not love in terms of some kind of emotional dependency. Instead, the kind of love that is in view here. The definition of this term is that of an active, whole-personed cleaving. An active, whole-personed cleaving. This is a kind of love that recognizes the ultimate value of the object loved. It is a recognition that the object that is loved is worthy of the best that I can offer. It is a cleaving It is the free and joyful giving of oneself to that object because that object is worthy. Not just because of what I get in return. It's because that object is recognized as inherently, intrinsically worthy of myself. To give of myself and to cleave to that one. That's the kind of love that is in view here, it's the kind of love that was utterly absent from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Oh, they knew all the, the trappings of the temple. They knew all the right steps to perform with the sacrifices. They knew all the right psalms to sing as they would walk up to the temple. They knew all the steps and procedures and what to do, what not to do. They knew those 613 commandments and this lawyer could recite them undoubtedly from memory. But the problem was they did not love. 
They did not cleave. They did not recognize the inherent worthiness of Yahweh and His Messiah. In fact, let's notice, you have the command to love, but the object of this love is explicitly stated. You shall love whom? The Lord your God. You shall love, if we go back to the Hebrew, you shall love Yahweh your God. The one true God, whose name, whose covenant name, whose personal name is Yahweh. Because here too, Jesus, as Moses does before him, drives it very personal. It's not just that you have to and must and shall love deity in some abstract form. The concept of God. No, this is, you shall love Yahweh. His name is used to show that this is personal. This is not just an acknowledgement that there is a creator and a maker. He's out there somewhere and we love that idea. No, it is you must love Yahweh, who He is. His identity. You shall love Him, not just what He does. You shall love Him, Moses says and Jesus repeats. That is the object of this, this love, this cleaving. So we have the command, we have the object of this command. And now notice also, the third ingredient here is the instruments of the, the command, the instruments to be used. Notice three important nouns that are used here. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Your heart, your soul, your mind. Now these three nouns are difficult to distinguish in us because we are complex, composite beings. And and you can't just take the soul out of us, so to speak, and put it on a scale like we can like with a liver or a, a heart or a kidney. These things are in that spiritual dimension. They're interwoven and very, very difficult to separate, and that's why so often in both the Old and the New Testaments, when these words are used, they can be used interchangeably. It's very, very difficult to, to separate them, and yet there, is, there are some nuances that do show some differences here. And when Jesus, as Moses had before him, uses these nouns, he's emphasizing the, the comprehensiveness of the love that's required here. All of man's being. The whole totality of it. And notice, first of all, we could say this. We are to love God with our hearts. Now what is the heart? How can we define that? Well, the heart is the the innermost center of one's being. We can call it mission control center. That's the heart. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, Watch over your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Mission control center. It's the place of devotion. It's the place of obedience. What about the soul? The soul could be defined as that which is the life force that energizes us. Remember Genesis 2 verse 7. God has fashioned Adam out of the dust of the ground. And then in 2 verse 7 we read, that then God breathed into his nostrils 
the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The, the soul is, is that life force, the energy and the passion that make us alive. The easiest noun here to describe or to define, however, is the term mind. The mind, consistently throughout Scripture, is that which is the faculty of thinking. It's the place where we do our comprehending, where we put together arguments, lines of reasoning, where we work through syllogism, major premise, minor premise, conclusion. It's the place of believing, uh, of coming to to, to conclusions on values. It's really the place of doctrine and of worship. That's the mind. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, and your mind. With all of your being, not just part of you. And in fact, let's notice that as the fourth component here of this command. We saw the command itself. We saw the object of the command. We saw the instruments of this command. Heart, soul, and mind. But also notice, number four, the extent the extent, notice the threefold repetition of the word all. All your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind. If it wasn't enough to express totality in using that triad of nouns to, to, to describe the extent of human existence, Jesus, as Moses does before him, adds those those, those three terms, all, th- th- that term three times, all, 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 to again emphasize totality. All the heart, all the soul, all the mind. As one commentator noted, God will have no mere part of these things. He will allow no division or no subtraction. Not even the smallest corner is to be closed against God. In other words, there's no room for division, no room for divided allegiance, for half-hearted or half-souled or half-minded responses. God is worthy of all. Who He is intrinsically, in His essence, He demands, by virtue of the fact that He is deity, He is Yahweh, He demands this kind of cleaving on our part. This kind of recognition that He is infinitely worthy. Inherently worthy of all of us. And to think otherwise, to lessen that in any other way, makes God out to be less than truly God. He is worthy of it because He is God. He's worthy of it because He's Yahweh. Jesus then states this after stating the citation from Deuteronomy 6.5. He then says this is the great and foremost commandment. Jesus reiterates what our supreme duty in life is. What our main chief purpose is. He says this is not only the great commandment. He says this is the foremost. This is number one. This is that commandment that if Even if you succeed in all else, but you fail in this one, it renders everything after it void. 
This is man's chief end. It reflects what Jesus had taught even going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, where Jesus put it very clearly in front of His audience there, man cannot serve two masters. There's only one, and His name is Yahweh. So we see in Jesus' response, He gives the first and foremost commandment, the primacy of love to God. But there is a second part of this, and it's found in the second command that's, that's cited. Jesus gives now the necessity of love for others. Verse 39, the necessity of love for others. Not only the primacy of love for God in verses 37 and 38, but the necessity of love for others in verse 39. Jesus says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus again quotes from the Old Testament. This time from Leviticus 19 verse 18 where Moses records these words. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of the people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. It's interesting to note that often you'll hear people say. Well the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath. The God of the New Testament is the God of love. And that shows an an ignorance and an illiteracy about what the Bible teaches. In fact, all of the New Testament exhortations about love flow out of the God of the Old Testament. It flow out of Yahweh. And even the commands to love your neighbor that Jesus so often repeats come out of the Torah. Leviticus 19.18, for example. And Jesus says that the second commandment here is like the first It has the same kind of dominance in the sense that it's a summation of what is required of it. But notice Jesus doesn't say the second is the same. He says the second is like it. There is a difference. He has just said the foremost commandment is love for Yahweh. This is the second one. It is like it and yet it is different In that you cannot truly love neighbor unless you have first loved Yahweh. But if you love Yahweh as is envisioned by that commandment, then you will note the necessity also to love your neighbor. These two commands cannot be pitted against each other, but one is primary, the other is secondary. One is foundational and the other one is consequential. But they both are part of what God has designed for our chief end in life. Jesus says, on these two commandments then depend the whole law and the prophets. When when commentator William Hendrickson summarizes it this way, he says, this twofold command is the peg on which the whole law and the prophets hang. Remove that peg. And all is lost for the entire Old Testament with its commandments and covenants, prophecies and promises, types and testimonies, invitations and exhortations points to the love of God which demands the answer of love in return. It's often been stated that the first half of the ten words, the ten commandments, deal with that first commandment to love God. The second half half deals with 
the commandments to love neighbor. Even into the New Testament, you find that over and over again. So that when Paul gets to Galatians chapter 5, he summarizes the law in the same way. It has to do with love. It has to do with love. Love of Yahweh and love of neighbor. That is our chief end. That is what we have been created to be and to do. Now notice this, as I already pointed out briefly. In our text, after Jesus makes that final statement in His answer in verse 40, unlike the previous two accounts, there is no response recorded. It's left without a summary statement. Like I said in verse 22, in response to the first question, hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving Him, they went away. And in verse 33, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at His teaching. And even in the final question, the one which Jesus Himself gives in 41 to 45, even verse 46 says, no one was able to answer Him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on. But this question, nestled as it is, as the third of this, these four stages, is absent of a summary statement. And the question is why? Matthew is a great writer. It's not that he forgot to include some kind of final statement. He leaves it off. Why? Probably because this question that is asked and then the answer that is given is so important that it utterly confounds the audience of all who were listening and there is silence. Just silence. How in the world do you respond to this? There is a A recognition, not just of astonishment at Jesus' way of interacting with His enemies. There is not just an astonishment here of how Jesus understands and teaches the law. There seems to be such a penetration here of what Jesus has said that it leaves the audience with nothing to say, including the Pharisees. How do you respond to this? You respond in silence. You respond with, I can't do this. How do we do this? There is this recognition that yes, God as our creator, as our maker, as the judge of the universe, He is inherently and infinitely worthy of the very best. Of the most glorious love of the most dedicated cleaving. He is worthy of that from all of His creatures because He is so high and lifted up, so glorious, so infinite in His majesty, so beautiful in all that He is. That when you think of that, you realize, I'm nothing. I can't do this. There, there's, there's no way in which we can even say, what a great way that Jesus answers. You're, you're left speechless. And rightly so. But although there is 
no recorded answer, we do have to think about more than just the silence that comes after an answer like this. So as we draw this all together, how shall we respond to this? How do we respond to this? Let me give you a few points here in closing, closing as we seek to put ourselves under the, the authority of this text and gather from it that which we ought to from, from the Lord. First of all, we must recognize this. Loving God requires our soul, our heart, and our minds. All three of those components of our being Loving God requires not just our life energy of the soul, not just devotion and obedience of the heart, but also our thinking. God is worthy of those things. And it's so easy in our lives to compartmentalize and to create dichotomies. God can have my emotions, for example. That I'll give to Him on a Sunday morning or at a Bible study. But as it relates to my mind and how I think, No, that I'm going to keep for myself. That's Monday through Friday. And all my pursuits, my academics, and my career, my mind is devoted to that. And I'll let God have my soul or my heart. There is no dichotomy that can be made here. There is no separation of spheres of our existence. Loving God truly as He deserves. The kind of love of which He's worthy requires heart, soul, and mind. It requires Every component of your being. Secondly, it requires not only every component of your being, it requires all of those components. You see, even in those aspects of life, maybe it's our affections, maybe it's our will, our, 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 uh, our, our, our decisions, maybe it's our thinking. We, we like to have these little compartments that we kind of cultivate as independent and separate. And we're content that the most of us is dedicated to the Lord and the, the, the majority of our heart, soul, and mind are, are, are directed toward Him. But we have these areas of life that we keep separate. And Jesus' response here says, Unacceptable. Jesus makes a radical claim that God is worthy of every emotion, every power or ounce of power of our will, every thought He's worthy of. You cannot have divided loyalties. You cannot embrace something in part of your life and and leave another part of your life somehow outside of God's sovereignty, all of it must be made to love God. All of it must be directed to that cleaving of which God is worthy. Third, loving God is prior to loving others. And this is important, especially in our day, as those two commandments can easily get reversed. And it may not seem like such a big thing because both of them are included in the law of God. But the order can be reversed. And with such a little sleight of hand, what is intended to be glorious turns into idolatry. If you put the love of neighbor before the love of God, you have created an idol. And you will not love truly, 
neither neighbor nor God. You must love God first. The order of these commands is very, very important. You cannot champion love of neighbor if you do not prioritize first the love of God. And we see that on display all the time. How often our culture will throw out the motto, love thy neighbor. We even saw it some time ago with uh, the governor of this this state purchasing billboard space in other states, inviting women to come to California to kill their pre-born babies, and using as justification for that invitation the statement, love your neighbor. Blasphemy. Idolatry. That's what happens when love for neighbor is put before love of Yahweh. We cannot do that. We must understand that to fulfill the second commandment, to, to fulfill all the commandments related to our relationships at a horizontal level, for that to function in the way it ought to, it first must be preceded and grounded by the vertical relationship. By the love for who Yahweh truly is. Because neighbor cannot be loved truly the way that the neighbor is worthy of that love. The kind of love that that neighbor should have if Yahweh is not first and foremost loved most. Finally, loving God is, the, is to be the final goal of, of all of our feeling, all of our expressions, all of our thinking, all of our ambitions. Again, what Jesus, as Moses did before, is not just command activities. Of, uh, it does, he does not just command worship in the kind of external sense. Remember, it is love. The final goal of all that we do must be this love of Yahweh, the kind of love, the cleaving of which He is worthy. But with that, we come back again to that, that reason why there's no summary statement that is issued here. There's, there's no verse 40 B, that's missing. There's nothing missing because when we're confronted here with this demand on our lives of of which God is worthy, we we are silenced because we all realize, how can I do that? God is worthy of that. That is true. That is my duty. That is true. That is my chief end. But how can I do this? How is this possible? And that's probably the, the, what Matthew is drawing from his readers is this speechlessness because we all realize none of us does this. Not one could ever say, I do it. Certainly the Pharisees could not. And we know that this command, this great chief end in man, for man, is impossible in our own strength. And it's unachievable apart from something prior to that. And the Apostle John, later on in his letter, identifies that. And he says this, we love, why? Because he first loved us. You see, this is the amazing beauty of Yahweh. That though in and of himself he is worthy of the love, of the purest love of all of His creation. We cannot provide Him with that, not because He has created us in some way as being 
impossible to achieve it, but rather it has been sin that has rendered us impotent and undesiring. Sin has corrupted us so that first of all, we don't recognize God, we don't recognize Yahweh as worthy of this. We will instead recognize that our careers are worthy of this, our families are worthy of this, our other aspirations and ambitions in life are worthy of this, but not God. That's what sin does to us. It does not allow us, it blinds us, in fact, to see the worthiness of God to this, such that when we see someone say that God demands absolute love, we respond to that with kind of a revulsion and say, well, how can that be? That's not right. God shouldn't do that. That's sin. That is sin and its effect on us. And not only that, but even if we could recognize that God is worthy of all of us, we would rebel and say, I don't care. I won't. And Yahweh would be completely righteous. It is the right response then to judge those who would refuse to acknowledge and respond. But Yahweh is also a God of love. And He has taken upon Himself the act to change the situation. In fact, He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to a a world that hated Him and was impossible and impotent to love Him. He gave His Son so that anyone whosoever who believes would have eternal life. As John puts it in his words later on in his first letter, we now can love because He first loved us. So you look at this and you might be speechless as the crowds were and wonder, I can't do this. You're right, you can't. But understand that God is the one who has unconditionally taken that step, not because you are worthy, but because He is love. To solve the problem. By sending his son. That whosoever would just believe on him. Would have that heart transformation. And now be able. To in some way that is now pleasing to God. Recognize him for his inherent worthiness. And then respond in in love. That is pleasing to him. But even if this has happened to you and you have been transformed by that love that He used to love us first, you still will say, I can't love God even in my current state as a Christian the way that He deserves and the way that Jesus is describing here. And you're right, we can't even in this life love the way that we ought to love. Love the way that He is worthy of being loved But again, God is a God of love and for His children, to those whom He has first loved, He has promised that there is coming a day when we will finally love Him as He deserves. And that is our great hope. If you are a believer, you understand this because it's your heart's complaint and cry so often that We recognize that He is worthy and our efforts are so pitiful 
They fall, they fall so short over and over and over again. And our cry is, Lord, why can I not love you as you are worthy of? And then we come to a text again from John in 1 John chapter 3 that explains that there is coming a time, beloved, when that love will be perfected. And we will, in that moment, be able to love Him as He deserves. 1 John 3, beginning in verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, however, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself as He is pure. What John is referring to there is we have experienced the love of God. We are the beloved. The the Father has bestowed on us a, a great love. And now we can begin to express as children this immature love. The Father accepts it, but He motivates us by this final end in which we will love Him as He deserves. And by fixing our our, our, our sight on that moment, on yearning for that day when we will love Him truly as He deserves, that will have its part even in the present life of constantly purifying us and even making that feeble love day by day stronger and stronger and stronger until it does reach that pinnacle on the day we see Christ. This commandment is certainly the one that Jesus gives. It's certainly worthy of God, but we can rest assured, first of all, that it ultimately is going to be accomplished by God Himself. As He saves us and makes us capable of loving Him even in imperfection, and then as He glorifies us and invites us into that paradise with Him in which we will love Him as we long to love Him. My question to you is, is that longing yours? Is that longing to love Him as He deserves a characteristic of your life? I'm not asking whether you do it perfectly. No, you can't. If you would answer in the affirmative, I would say you're wrong. But do you yearn to love Him as Jesus commanded? Do you yearn and long to love Him with that kind of of totality? And if you do, that is a great sign that you are already in Christ and you've recognized that, that, that you have been loved first. But if that's not your yearning, my fear is is that you have not trusted in Him. That you have not been made alive. That you have not been, been made new by that love that comes through the Gospel. And my plea then to you is to throw yourself at Christ, at His feet. Acknowledge the fact that you have not loved Him. That you have not loved Yahweh. And ask Him for life. For total transformation. For forgiveness of sins. He invites you, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And to those who come, he in no way will cast away. Come to him. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are so convicted by these words. They're convicted when we 
take even just a few moments as we have this morning to consider how how you are worthy of the best, worthy of perfect love, and that it is our only right duty and chief end to love you this way. And yet we look at ourselves and confess our love often ebbs and flows. There's moments of lukewarmness, even of coldness. We're so thankful that it's not our love for you that saves us. It's your love for us. And we pray, however, in response to this truth that we would increasingly recognize you to be worthy of our very best. You'd empower us and cleanse us and purify us to to love increasingly, that, that we would be like the, the man said to your son Jesus, I, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And we say the same thing about our love. We love you, but help us in our unlove to grow. And we long for that day, Father, when that love will be perfected and we will finally enjoy being those creatures created to love you as you deserve. We long for that day and we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.